Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. And joining me today for our next installment in Mage at 30 is probably the name most associated with Mage the Ascension at this point, Satyrus Filbricado. And we are going to be walking through kind of the first year of Mage, kind of 1E. And we're going to we're gonna go through Satyrus's memory palace. We're going to see <laughs> what fetters, wonders, talismans, and uh, collections of tasks we can pull off, pick up, shake the dust off, and uh, see if they still have any resonance to them. Uh, so Satyrus, how you doing? Oh, that was that was good. Uh, that was <laughs> that was class. I love it. <laughs> Someone once commented and said Terry's superpower is the ability to continually generate mage inflected nonsense, and I have never <laughs> been both more insulted and uh, a flattered at the same time. Uh, <laughs> You're better at it than I am. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, thirty years ago this month, I was standing at my job at Saxon Shoes, Virginia's largest shoe store in basically a, a state of panic because I really, really, really wanted the mage job because it would get me the fuck out of Saxon and get me the fuck out of Richmond, Virginia. And I was afraid, you know, I'd gone, I had, at that point, I'd interviewed for it. They sent me a draft of it while it was in editing. I sent back a 20-something page. This is what I would do. This is what I think. This is what I would change. Prospectus. And then I didn't hear anything. It was like, tick, tick. And Gen Con is coming up. Gen Con at this point is is a few days away. And I'm like, I'm never going to get the job. Somebody else is going to be stuck here for the rest of my life. And I was like, yeah. And a friend of mine at the store was there. And she's like comforting me. She's like, no, no, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I get a, you know, Phil, line four. Phil, line four. This accepted. And hello, this is Phil. Hi, Phil, this is Stuart Wick at White Wolf, and I wanted to, if you are still interested, I wanted to offer you the mage developer position. And I'm like keeping my voice going, yes, I would really like that. Meanwhile, I'm like, jumping <laughs> and we're like both jumping up and down, you know, mm-hmm. like in Alice's restaurant, we're both jumping and down and, and stuff. And, and I'm like trying to keep my voice. Up. Yeah, I would, I would want that. And he, he's like, I know this is really late notice, but we would like it if you can come to Gen Con with us. And I said, yeah, I will see what I can do. And meanwhile, I'm going, oh, fuck, 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 I'm going to and, and stuff. So I accepted the job, obviously. And, and my friend gave me a big hug. And then she ran to go tell our other friends that I'd got the job. Then I called my now former wife, Kathy, to let her know that I'd gotten the job. And then I called my dad to borrow money to, to get to Gen Con because I needed to fly out like the next day because this, this was like four days, I think, maybe before Gen Con. Between the time that I was officially hired and, oh, I don't know, 1996, <laughs> it was pretty much a blur. <laughs> and I could remember certain parts of it vividly and other parts of it is just like, what, what, what? Because it just all went by so fast. And there was just so much crammed into a short period of time. Like this would have been August 15th or something, 1993. Uh, young Phil would have been what, like 27, maybe 28? 27. 27 at the time. The things that are wild about that to me are the fact that you had an RPG job that, des- that depended on going to a place. And that seemingly doesn't exist anymore. But also the fact that like in a much younger industry handing a developer role to a 27 year old like you were kind of old in some corners of that industry already i was the third oldest person at white wolf yeah and that's just kind of nuts to me like you go through annals and like oh the first dean of mit was like 32 
or something like mm-hmm. that. An era where we just gave colleges and universities <laughs> to, to people who, who had just barely gotten beyond a, a quarter-life crisis. And then you went to Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And what was that Gen Con 93 like, especially with such sleeper hits as Magic the Gathering also being released then? Magic, that's funny because people kept confusing Magic and Mage, partly because of the similarity of the title and partly because we had the, uh, the, the tarot card on the cover. Magic had just come out a month and a half ago at Origins, I believe. And so it was the fucking hottest thing at the convention and mage was the second hottest thing at the convention because white wolf at that point was was white phosphorus and one of the things i vividly remember both from that particular gen con and from pretty much every gen con until 98 was the the sound of the crowd behind the doors because you know you get there if you were with one of the companies or selling something, you would get there, you know, the day before and you would set up your booth and you would start meeting people and you'd walk around and talk to folks and get your kind of get your bearings and get everything. And then the day that the convention would start, the sound of the crowd was kind of like, you ever seen Pink Floyd's The Wall? No. And the scene where the crowd is outside and the doors are shaking. The doors weren't shaking, but it felt like that. And there's this just feeling, this presence of tens of thousands of people on the other side of the doors. And then they would let the doors open and and they would pour in. And the two places that the 90% of them would go, or three places, 90% of them would go is the TSR Castle, the Wizards of the Coast booth, and the White Wolf booth. That was the first stop for, for as many people as could get to. And it was just amazing. But it, it, was, it was a blur that I, I remember certain moments vividly and a whole bunch of what uh one of the really cool fun things from that was uh was meeting alan varney whose work i'd been reading for years you know with the the work that he did with hero games and uh his his now wife uh, beth fiske and and meeting them and they were just neat and awesome people i liked them immediately so they came up with this idea to publicize werewolf the apocalypse they came up with this idea of they were releasing the book of the worm or had really recently released the book of the worm or getting ready uh, to do another promo. I think it was for Under a Blood Red Moon, but I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, they were doing a Pentex board meeting. And anybody who has who's familiar with the books knows that the Pentex board of directors in, in the various different werewolf books were caricatures of the people, of people on the White Wolf staff. And so the folks who were caricatured, you know, got in makeup and stuff like that. And they staged the skit where they were having a Pentex board meeting and a bunch of people, one guy dressed as a werewolf had this really impressive Krinos costume and a number of people, including some folks on the staff who were all like made up in, in paint and stuff like that to look like kinfolk. They charged into the meeting and they killed a bunch of the members of the board. And up to this point, they had been giving away or giving away with a certain number of purchase. You would get a stock in Pentex. Uh, the folks who again bought a certain amount would get a certain amount of stock. And then after the killing of the board members, there was this whole thing to find to elect new members of the board. And this was amazing because, you know, the, the people who would who won would, you know, caricatures of them wound up in the Book of the Worm um, second edition. I, I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about that, but it was just so much fun to watch this and so much fun to see how just crazed the fans were for, for White Wolf in general. And, and being on the receiving end of, of that was on one hand just 
exhilarating on the other hand terrifying <laughs> it's like oh my god you just grab on and, and hang on for dear life <laughs> that's what working with white wolf was like it feels like an utter inversion of modernity where periodically you will get the steady stream of people going oh you did this thing i like that's nice but very loud denouncements from people who hate your work where in the 90s if someone wanted to hate you it took an awful lot of work in comparison <laughs> for them to tell you that and you've got this is the chance for people to see new things so that gen con had about 20,000 attendees it was at the i think the mecca convention center in milwaukee the one i just went to had over seven uh, there were 70,000 4 day badges sold plus the 1 day badges so probably total attendance of about 80,000 but also a vastly larger space to fit them in. People were like, this is this is just a morass of humanity. I'm like, have you never been to a general admission concert? This is child's play. I can't even crowd surf on this shit. I don't know what you're complaining about. I do wish more people were wearing masks though. But like when you went into the dealer hall, maybe you discovered something, but nobody was cracking down the doors because they had to see the new releases. We, we all know about them. Like we knew Werewolf 5th Edition was going to be out then. And at best, someone just stopped by the booth to pick up the copy that they had already purchased to save $5 on shipping rather than having it mailed directly to them. Like Monty Cook does Kickstarter fulfillment there. And that is a product by definition you already know about, but this was still the era where someone could be like, yeah, I hear they're going to be releasing this and they're going to have this little sap. And then they come to your booth and they're like, oh, I didn't even know this book existed and it's new and I can get it here now. Shut up and take my money. Was it just like moving copies all weekend? Like were you essentially a, a yes. sales associate? Oh God, okay. yes. All of us spent a lot of time at the booth. And by the way, I've remembered my friend's name. Her name is Lynn Ragland. And Lynn, if you're out there, thank you. You were awesome. Another funny anecdote real quick is that Peter Atkinson, because there were a number of people, Rich Thomas especially, who worked on magic cards and because Wizards of the Coast and White Wolf were kind of sister companies early on. And Peter comes by with several cases of magic cards. And he says, we're going through these fast. And I just wanted to, you know, give, give you guys some. If so, if you want some. And of course, like half the company fell on them and tore, <laughs> and tore into them. And my dumb ass, I'm like... And, and it, Peter even talked to me at that point. That's when I met him. And, and he's like, you know, uh, I see the mage thing and everything. Hey, and this this looks really cool. If you here, have you have some cards? And I'm like, thank you. This looks really neat. Um, I'm not really into card games. God, I was such a fucking dumbass. I could buy my house for what uh, for what those cards are worth. Now. <laughs> a little bit. I, I try not to think about things like that. It, yeah. it is it is analogous to when you could could have mined 50 Bitcoin in a single afternoon a couple of years ago, except without destroying the rainforest. And also Peter Atkinson being seemingly one of the nicest people to ever he really is. be also successful. You and I got to do an interview where I got to make the claim, good storytellers are rare, good writers are rarer, good developers are yet rarer, good people with business sense who aren't assholes in this industry are the rarest of them all. Um, oh, and the Wicks and Peter Atkinson seem to be in a very small thing along with like Lisa Stevens who are able to balance that and only for their largesse does this industry seemingly still continue. Did you think people would be talking about Mage 30 years after that oh day? God, no. Okay. Oh God, no. <laughs> it's one of the things that is surreal. I mean, I love it, but it's surreal. I love it for the most part, but it's surreal. Role-playing game books were like comic book back then and, and nobody was, was expecting comic books to last, you know, like they did either. You know, that was... The 90s, after, you know, years of, of economic deprivation, the 90s were a huge boom time and people were, you know, throwing money at lots of things like, you know, comic books and role-playing games. Like comic books, your company 
depended on the next issue selling. We had no idea that these books, it, it, I mean, it's, it's awesome that people are still looking at it, except for the times when, you know, they, they yell at you for not using a term that didn't exist 30 yeah. years ago, or for not knowing something you couldn't possibly have known 30 years ago. Aside from that, I, I love that people are still getting and enjoying and reading and even discovering the stuff that we did back then. I love that we were able to revisit it, and we have been able to revisit it with Mage 20. That has been fucking awesome. But no, there was no thought of there being any kind of permanence it was great when a book went into a second printing, you know? <laughs> and that was back in the days of offset printing and keeping everything in the warehouse. Not even the PDFs, that, that technology was a decade in the future. The idea of, of even the, the idea of even selling books online was something that came along in 94, 95. It wasn't something that you could do, even thought about doing back in 93. So you had gotten this job. You go to Milwaukee, you get the high of people being like, oh my God, this is better than sex on toast. And you move <laughs> infinity copies, you go Peshaw, Magic the Gathering, this will never be a thing. And you had your 30 pages of notes from reading that core edition. We've had the conversation before on how kind of the original vision of Mage, to try and be generous, the role-playing technology was not there yet. And the audience would have been kind of narrow for seemingly something that academic and philosophical. There's the six-week sprint to turn it into something that maybe plays better with the rest of the world of dark and kind of sets up this world and you are handed first edition which has a very particular view of the world of mage it kind of looks at quintessence as being this kind of fight over oil as it were and you have the traditions that it is almost out of the gate the most apocalyptic of the lines seemingly with the technocracy just breathing down your neck constantly anyone who's not either balls to the wall or with an arcane of five seemingly is kind of boned we get one e nwo where the technocrats literally have magic detecting satellites in orbit god bless Maynar. and then kind of the shift starts where by second edition, we firmly have the idea that magical practice is rooted in human traditions and the tradition is kind of the thing that leads rather than it being a pale imitation. Like 1E, the euthanatoi have the straight dope on reincarnation, and it specifically says Hinduism has a flawed understanding of it. Okay. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> not, your, not your fault, Phil. If you're um, Hindu, that's pretty fucking offensive, which was one of the reasons we changed it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Did you have a plan on where you wanted it to go, or was it just kind of with each book, you kind of shifted it a little bit? Both. One of the critiques in my original draft was that, that several of the concepts, that several of the first edition core concepts were, you know, are, are flawed. The, you know, the idea that everybody believes in science and nobody believes in magic, that's never been true in human history. It certainly wasn't, it wasn't even true in the 90s. It wasn't even true in the United States, much less in the world. You know, the majority of people throughout the world do still have a metaphysical belief system and always have that's that's even true in the u.s might not necessarily call it doing magic but you know they'll, they'll like pray for something to happen the view that the the technology took over you know with the with the traitor copernicus took over and the whole world went snap into us that's historically that's not what happened and because i'm history buff i'm very much into you know the, the politics and social change and culture and so forth and what i wanted to have what I, I wanted to reorient it so that the mythos made sense with the world that we know. I wanted to make sure that it was respectful to real life beliefs because as magic is rooted in human belief. It's important to recognize that, that these aren't just, you know, spells that you throw at a hit mark, that these are reflections of people's actual beliefs. 
and especially when you're dealing with with other people's cultures you need to be respectful of that and we tried to be as respectful as possible in a world where you couldn't talk to somebody from from that belief structure or from that culture but just by you know tapping on the keyboard a few times wanted to make it personal because mage as it was originally presented had a lot of big philosophical ideas but was was slippery it was difficult to grab onto unless you had a particular mindset and i was like both from a commercial standpoint of do you want to sell more than you know than 300 copies and from a artistic standpoint do you want to speak to and for a lot of people then it i I felt it had to resonate on a personal level you know rather than there is a paradigm that moves the world forward going my beliefs mean this because this and making it as as i you know phrased it a lot in in mage 20 the intimate epic another part of the okay how do we make this work was was taking a game that was both that was represented on one hand by spaceships flying through purple space with lizard people on them and and folks on you know uh, air bikes and things like like that flinging around laser beams and was also represented by guys jumping around with katanas on a rooftop connecting the person who lives magic with the world of this wild you know umbra ship and spirit beings and talking with gods and shit like that and how to take something as a metaphor that i used a lot back in the old days was i i had a gigantic canvas with a whole bunch of with a whole bunch of different parts of it painted in different colors and i had to make the whole thing work and bring all of those those different colors together to fill the canvas and on some levels i'm still doing that 30 years later you had a distinct vision for mage and it made sense and harry heckle even mentioned uh, phil was the person who turned this from a world into a place to have stories he brought a narrative and storytelling sensibility to a game that was about concepts do you think mage overall has benefited from the first entry just kind of being batshit like i get the sense that if somebody had been like satiros we would like you to write one e of mage it would have been kind of that much more intimate out of the starting block as opposed to like this is how you teach your dinosaur to use your space katana yeah actually and thank you if ken's ever listening to this thank you for the words it's all yours we have no idea what to do with it because i would i if it had been a much more narrowly defined parameter one i wouldn't have had nearly as much fun with it for better or worse i both got to and had to bring a vision to make it all work but they they gave me the freedom to do that that's and i which i i really appreciate in both you know with steve stewart and later with rich they've always had the freedom to to do the how to wrangle this <laughs> this titanic thing in, into something that people go like oh god yes i want to play that if it had been more narrowly defined it and if i had defined it more narrowly it wouldn't have been nearly as interesting as as it is with being you know your flavor of batshit <laughs> and so we have the core book that that goes hard and it goes wild again listeners if there is a section from the one e core rule book that you particularly like and has inspired an idea in you tell us about it we're going to be doing readings throughout the year kind of those favorite segments until paradox tells us not to anyway we have mage the ascension it is this mystifying core rule book you have a black person on the cover it is a reinterpretation of the writer wait smith tarot card so anyone familiar with it gets both that hit of oh this is mysterious and oh they're doing something different right off the bat then you have the one e storyteller screen which is just born of the art direction being like we need to have this be as wild as humanly possible from what i understand and then we have angel of mercy which is a supplement 
my first task as developer, even before we left for, for Gen Con, was to talk to Steve Brown, who was getting ready to quit because he hadn't had any guidance on Book of Chantries, which was to be the first source book. And it needed to be turned in in a few weeks, and he had no idea what to write. So first I talked him down, and then he and I brainstormed for like three hours or so. And then <laughs> Kathy Ryan and I got into her car and drove to Gen Con. And when I got back, and you know, when we got back, I, I went back to Virginia. I, I packed up my shit and moved it down, uh, moved in with, with Brian Campbell. That would be end of August, beginning of September. And by that point, Steve already had a bunch of material for me. And Steve and I were literally rewriting, were literally writing the book with some help from, uh, from Jim Moore, who Bill had introduced me to. Jim and I hit it off immediately. So Jim, I was like, oh, we need to have a module in the back of this book. Uh, Jim, can you write something? He's like, yeah, I'll put on Samuel Hayden. You know, we brainstormed up the thing in like an afternoon and, and he wrote it up and got it to me. And then I was fitting the pieces together. But no, it was, it was digital. The, the order in which I did the books Book of Chantries, Technocracy Progenitors, Loom of Fate, Virtual Adepts, Digital Web, Sons of Ether, Verbena. I did the tradition books starting in reverse because I didn't have anybody to write the Akashic Brotherhood book and I needed to have... And meanwhile, I had Darren McKeeman who was raring to go on Virtual Adepts, so I put him, gave him the contract for that as soon as I got hired. Since the digital web was in my brainstorm document, so that was the first one where I started laying the groundwork for it. Daniel Greenberg, Darren McKeeman, and myself, I think Bill Bridges, and, and I know Brian Campbell were part of those brainstorming sessions as well, but I started hashing out what the digital web would be that came later okay. <laughs> the first order of business was it was it was i want to say chris hind he had already written most of the first draft that was an experience right there when i that the uh, the canadian postal service does not like nudity you got comstock so we had mailing envelope from the office that had images from the various different lines and some of the envelopes had the Thanatos design on them, and some of them had the Verbena design on them. And I had sent Chris's red lines back to him, and Chris is living in Canada. Sent the red lines to him in one of the Verbena envelopes, and they never reached him because somebody at the post service thought that they were pornography and destroyed it. So when he when he contacted me saying I haven't got the red lines yet, and then we re we realized what happened, I had to go through the book and redline it again. At that point, I learned to photocopy your red lines in case something happens to them, because this is this is all pre the days when you you could send a text over the internet yeah it had to be hard copy our writers were sending us floppy disks with with the stuff on them and we were sending back printouts with red lines was that the william uh, kaluta verbena tradition book art or some other yes. okay cool no it was the, it was the the william kaluta designs yeah someone best described to me as how to tell the difference between mage the ascension and mage the awakening is is it all william kaluta or just a bunch of william kaluta <laughs> Well, he also, poor, poor William also had to do those in like four weeks or something like that because they were still creating the traditions when the book was getting, when, when the book was, was headed toward press. And so that's why some of those images are really, really elaborate. And some of them are look, you know, look like William sketched them out in an hour because he did because <laughs> uh, he needed to get them in. I miss the era of illustration. I think black and white is, can be just as impactful as some of the the modern color pieces, but that's just that's just me being crotchety. You mentioned Book of Chantries, and kind of two things immediately come out to me. 
one mage compared to all the other lines. Its opening book was about places where Vampire's first book was a player's guide and Werewolf's first book was a player's guide with more merits and options and shit like that. The other thing that occurs to me is that car ride plus brainstorming session is seemingly the most fecund period of mage ideas in human history because I look through the Book of Chantries and like... Duizetep is still being ref- mentioned. Porthos and Chiron Mustai guide the Tui meta plot. We get the the House of Helicar events, which kind of drive events. We get our first introduction to Vormos. Why was a book of chantries kind of chosen as Mage's first book? And I guess why do you think so many of those characters have had such an enduring effect on what people think of the iconic figures of mage uh well it was commissioned that book was commissioned before i was hired Uh, the schedule that was laid out because you know when when they're getting ready to to launch the line they they had to figure out what the first few source books were and the first few source books that were contracted out were loom of fate the angel of mercy obviously uh and a book of chantries the writers have already been hired and ironically my foot in the door with mage initially was Stuart was hiring me to write what was going to be the technocracy guide. Originally, it was going to be one big book for the technocracy, and I had no idea what what's a technocracy. I don't know. I'll, I'll take the job. Yes, but but that was the situation that Steve was in with with Chantries because he's like, I I'm hired to write this gargantuan source book of places, and I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. He didn't say fuck, Steve. Uh, I've never heard Steve curse. But Steve had no idea what he was supposed to write. He knew he was supposed to write something, but Mage had only barely been finished, and he's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I was in a similar situation with a technocracy guide. So rather than try and do a technocracy guide right out of the bat, I said, let's break it down. So that each group with the technocracy, each group has its own splat book. And of course, sales and marketing love that idea <laughs> because it means more stuff. And I love that idea because it means we didn't have to suddenly come out with another big book of a group that was nebulous at best. And that's where Judy McLaughlin, my old friend and gaming partner from Richmond, Virginia, was also a grad student. She and her roommate, Libby Miller, were doing their master's degrees in uh, things biology and genetic, if I recall correctly, but they were both grad students. Judy and I I worked on the the Black Furies tribe book, which I was also writing simultaneously. I, I had been contracted, Bill had contracted me to write that book, but I was writing it while also writing the first few uh, and, and co-writing the first few mage books. And like I said it was a crazy time because Judy, you know, knew the world of science. I got Judy and Libby to work with me on that book because they knew a whole hell of a lot more about science than I did. And it was my idea to present each splat book as a through the eyes of a new member of this group. That was the actor in me going, you know, rather than going, the group is this, 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 to present a, so, welcome to the group. Here's what your experience, you know, here's what my experience going into the group is like. And if I recall correctly, Judy and Libby came up with the idea of a person going into basically, you know, (laughs) grad student blundering into and being accepted into the technocracy. And part of both the fun... I mean, obviously, that was that was a satirical element that I felt needed to be part of Mage too, was to keep it from taking itself too seriously. Presenting a, a satire on academia and grad school, which included the the infamous Batwing Chihuahua and a rather frog-tongued. Was this, it was a turtle. I don't know. It's been a while since I read the book, but the Batwing Chihuahua and the idea there was was Judy and and Libby were like, this is what people. If you gave a grad student genetics and the possibility to to uh, you know genetic 
the ability to to manipulate and create new art forms as a class project a batwing chihuahua would be one of the things uh steve wick when the book came out <laughs> he was like i wanted to talk to you about this but this is not quite what we had in mind did you have something in mind for for this with batwing chihuahuas and i was like yes i, I wanted to make it so that one people we, we would take mage seriously but not too seriously so it wasn't all doom and gloom and partly it was you know, the person who was working on the book was like, this is what I would do. And he's like, yeah, that's valid. Okay, go for it. You know, I, I just wanted to see if you had an idea in mind or if you're just throwing stuff at the wall. Well, I kind of both. You know, when you're doing a book a month, you have to. And that going to your, your back to your question, so much of the book of Shantries was Steve Brown and I throwing things at the wall as quickly as we possibly could. A lot of the characters in there, Steve had listed out a bunch of names and I'm like, but who are these people? The various different characters kind of started as Steve would start with a name and I would say, who is this? Either brainstorm up together on the phone. I don't even want to know what the phone bills were like for White Wolf in those days. But we would either brainstorm it up on the phone or he would send me like a name and maybe a paragraph or maybe a sentence and I would flesh out the rest. Vermoss is an interesting case there because he threw out the name to me. I came up with a bunch of stuff, and then Rob Hatch added the stuff up with the Shiva Body of Doom, which I thought was phenomenal. I, thought, I loved that. Brainstorming as quickly as we could in terms of the the resonance that the characters have. Part of that, obviously, was, was intentional in terms of me building Metaplot around these characters, Porthos in particular. And part of it was just a product of which of these characters spoke to us. Like with Amanda, it was I would just get a feeling of this character interests me. Kathy, what can we do with Amanda? I really loved Kathy's opening fiction for, or not for opening fiction rather, but the chapter fiction with Amanda. And I'm like, this character is neat. And I love the way you've written her. And so we brainstormed up in, in the car ride, this idea of carrying, opening all of the major source books, all of the book of whatever, with the continuing adventures of Amanda. Kathy completely aced it on that. I wanted to give that, you know, present that saga as something for people to hold on to. And that's a, the idea of something to hold on to is also the Book of Chantries was coming up with characters like, in particular, uh, Haitian Morning Glade and Dr. Volcano, two of my mouthpiece characters that I was just like, uh, this is me talking through this character and, and expounding on this thing. And rather than the author going, I, the author, say this, I will put it in the words of this character who I'll now carry through in different books, because that gives people something to hold on to and someone to relate the other thing that to me is so evocative about Book of Chantries is you have these strong personalities, but you have these wonderful places. Um, <laughs> the description of the environment around Doizatep, Realm of Smoke and Lightning, the one that still sticks with me is Null B, which I assume is a joke on, what is it, A.E. Van Vogt's Null A, or at least a reference to on Yenosia and just on the Sea of Despair. And there's just this technocratic installation that's just kind of grinding you down. And then we get Dracus Valor, which gives us like nephondic architecture as an idea. And was anyone keyly responsible for getting that sense of place in addition to that sense of character? It was both Steve and I. Some of them like Noel B, that was very, that was totally Steve. I had 
no idea what to do with with that. Mecca, I had ideas. Steve came up with the concept. Whether or not the individual place was fleshed out beyond that concept depended on whether Steve felt inspired by it or whether I felt inspired by it. Then the Fendic Labyrinth and the House of Helicar were very much mine. Doisetep, that that was very much a, a synergy there because he had this really powerful vision of the realm of forces, this really powerful theme of corruption, the idea of what happens when you get a bunch of reality-bending, centuries-old, whacked-out wizards. That's where the concept of resonance comes from, uh, taking the, 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 the law of threefold return and going wild with it, this idea that these people are so powerful and so old and have seen so many things and have experienced so many things and can powerfully do so many things that they're really not even human. They're human in all the best and worst ways, mostly the worst. And what is going to happen if you get a, get a, if you get a bunch of people like that? They're going to be a bunch of scheming, backstabbing, crazy people whose whims are shaping the world around them into something that is virtually uninhabitable, and yet they, they still live there. And that idea really appealed to me. It was, Steve would come up with a concept, I would run with it, and he ran further with some of them, and I ran further with some of them. Like the, the Nightmare Theater, I think he had like a few sentences, and I was just like, oh, I can totally get into this. I, you know, homeless kids in an abandoned theater, neat. And that one's mostly mine. Nolby, Morovia, those are mostly his. It was really a trade-off. Steve would come up with an idea in which, which one of those ideas got fleshed out more dependent on how we felt about it. And what did, what did the six dot mean to you at that point? Oh, God, it meant a typo. Oh, because okay. <laughs> there, ah, there's a bunch of was, them running around. We got Porthos and ah. Vormoth's. Andrew Greenberg had recently introduced the idea of disciplines higher than five. I thought, because I did this, the stat blocks for all those characters, I thought if you're dealing with a guy who's been a mage for 500 years, that dude's going to be pretty fucking powerful. He's going to be more powerful than a player character. And it was just one of those things where I kind of threw it in there as a placeholder without really thinking about the implications, because I was literally, I was also madly trying to make the mage magic system make sense. A big part of that, that first year involved talking to people who'd bought the book and who were running the game and going, okay, what are your experiences with it? And one of the biggest experiences was, help! And when I was filling out the stat blocks, I had no fucking clue how the magic system worked. I was brainstorming that in among a whole bunch of other things. By the time that the book went to press, I realized that I didn't want to tackle the idea of sphere levels above five because sphere five gave you, you know, the the power of nuke. But I didn't take them out because I was juggling a whole bunch of other stuff. And obviously, as soon as it made it into print, people wanted to know how it how it worked out in game. And of course, you know, that led to headaches I'm still dealing with for years later. <laughs> But initially, it was kind of a placeholder where it's like, you think Forces yeah, 5 is great. This guy has Forces 6. I'm not going to tell you what Forces 6 is. It, it's essentially plot device as yes. dots. And, and Vampire explicitly yeah. did that with some of the higher level ones where they're just like, I'm not going to tell you what it does. But this guy can do something arbitrarily powerful that has to do with animalism or fortitude. This person can uh, can get hit by a nuke or something like that. And as a storyteller, you, you are allowed to kind of do whatever you want. It, it happened with a bunch of the early, very powerful old generation vampires where 
it would be listed as having Obfuscate 7 or something like that. And we didn't even have Obfuscate 6 yet. And there might be a footnote that says, oh, by the way, this is what that means. But okay. Yeah, that's that's certainly fine. That it's kind of an artifact of being like, what, again, that, that broad board with so much place that is not filled in and kind of it just being a marker or a direction for where things could go. I worked on that book for about three weeks. Steve worked on it, obviously, longer than that. But that book was all told there was less than two months in between the time that I you know, got the call from Steve and the time that book went into editing was less than two months. What was it like being in an office? Like as weird as that sounds, <laughs> like I do a writing assignment now, Travis says you have 9,000 words to talk about the celestial chorus, go. I don't know what anyone else is doing. Maybe I bat around an idea with the person who's writing up the Templars or something like that for Forbidden Magics or something like that. But otherwise I'm just kind of in my own thing. Like I feel like I had almost, I have almost the opposite of what you've folks had where I have infinite re reference material, but finite ability to talk to my fellow authors, where if you're all in an office or you're all making long distance phone calls for, for extended periods of time, but you're lucky if you can get access to a university library for a couple hours to, to check one or two things, kind of what did that writing process feel like when everyone was in an office or at least was much more interconnected during it? It was a lot faster. It was like a like a like like a bullpen, and in the I mean, for all intents and purposes, was a bullpen, you know, in a comic company. On most levels, it was awesome because there was this tremendous spirit of creativity and collaboration there. I mean, everybody, including the folks who were in the warehouse, was part of uh, was part of the creative process. One of the things that that I missed as the as the company grew was that at the at that very beginning, we were all the team. We were the rock band, and everybody had an instrument, and we. Were were just jamming until all hours. I guess that's, that's the closest analogy other than the bullpen, which, you know, literally it was, but was, was that it was like a band and everybody had, everybody had their riffs and everybody had their instruments and everybody went for at least for a while, we were all listening to each other and encouraging one another. And when that process began to break down, partly because it was too big, partly because we started getting financial divisions with the people who were getting typically low salaries and the people who had been there for a while and got big salaries. And a lot of it was because we pushed so hard. It was 24-7 crunch time, always. There was never a, we're now in crunch time. Those first few years were crunch time. But that period to you lasted a couple of years I started fragmenting on it around 1995, and I became the first person to, to telecommute in, I believe it was 96, because the office politics and patience for being around other people had burned out to the point where I'm like, I will get more work done at home. Those first two years, we were always, you could close the door, and you know, and those of us who had doors, which we didn't even have cub cubicles until the second office, or, or rather, the, you know, the second office complex. Early on, everybody had their own office, um, except for, I think, Kathy, Michelle, and Sam shared one big office in the layout, in, in the production department. But you could close the door, and most of us did when we really seriously needed to get something, get something written. But for the most part, people would, unless there was a sign on the door, people would come in and you would talk about stuff. Hey, can I, can I talk to you about this? Can I ask you about this? And the fact that Bill and Andrew and I had been friends for a while, that helped because we could always, hey, Bill, can you, help me, can you help me with this? Or, you know, hey, Phil, I want to brainstorm this thing with you, and we would just do that. It was loud, uh, especially down my hallway because we had, I was, my office was at the end of a hallway that had Rob Hatch on one side and 
Brian Campbell on the other, and all three of us listened to the loudest, most obnoxious music. It was fun, but it was hard. We worked hard. We played hard. We encouraged each other, and we drove each other up the wall. It was great until it wasn't. Book of Chantries, as you mentioned, is kind of your first project that goes out into the world. We've got we've got our first checkmark. Boom. We've had we've had our Sam hate moment. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> Technocracy Progenitors and Luma Fate are kind of the next up early in queue, along with Virtual Adepts and Digital Web. What was that early technocracy to you? Again, we get that core presentation that magic is just, technology is just kind of a veneer over some truer magic and an attempt to extinguish creativity from the world. Where was the technocracy? Where did you want it to go? I wanted it to reflect the real world metaphysical elements of, of science and technology, as well as also representing the, you know, good intentions gone horribly wrong. The idea of the big, bad, evil technocracy destroying magic in the world, that's Marx. That's, uh, that's not even really, it's kind of a little bit there in Stuart's original draft, but that's really more Mark, Marx's whole um, Luddite. Thing of and it was it was part of it was meant I think probably to tie it in more with werewolf the idea that technology is the enemy of magic is historically and philosophically and metaphysically incorrect and I wanted to fix that uh, so we kind of have this first draft where the technology angle isn't huge you get that playtest version or the the one ebook that is have more inflected with with Mark's vision of science versus magic and then to you you were just kind of bringing it back to what you consider to be a metaphysical truth. Yeah, that it would ultimately be, it wasn't that technology is bad, it's that what the technocratic union, which was Brian Campbell coined that term, because I said we've, we've got to have something else to call it, and Brian Campbell came up with both the order of reason and the technocratic union, and Brian deserves the majority of the credit. Brian and Judith McLaughlin deserve the majority of the credit for the direction that the technocracy went. My idea was we need to fix this because technology is not innately evil, and technology, and, and Historically speaking, most forms of, pretty much all forms of technology and science began as magic. The, the roots of chemistry is alchemy. The roots of architecture is, is well, architecture, but, you know, sacred geometry. You know, the, the roots of modern medicine are, quote unquote, witchcraft, herbalism, pharmaceuticals, yeah. so forth. Herbalism, Ayurveda, they're not separate. It's what you do with them. And we started working with that, that vision in Book of Chantries where I was saying, you know, I wanted to show in all of those groups, except really for the, aside from the logic of the gray squirrel and uh, the nightmare theater one of the thematic ideas that i wanted to go with in that book was this is what happens when you get a bunch of people who are too powerful for their own good this is how it gets warped and this is how it warp, warp, warps the world around them and then i these other groups where it's not warped in the case of nightmare theater yet when i was saying okay we we really need to to make this more more true to life and more true to to you know, uh, say occult history, but occult history. Where should we go with that, Brian and Judy? And you know, with in Judy's case, Libby's case, and of course, the, in the case of the brainstorming, here's how the science works, and here's the history of the science, and here's how the institutions work when you're on the inside. And in Brian's case, it was here's how we riff on the prisoner uh, to make statements about oppressive systems destroying the individual. So it wasn't not necessarily about the any implicit presumption that technology is imprisoning or destructive of the individual, but just that it seemed like this group in the Ascension Conflict is seemingly winning, and this is kind of where it can go if anyone wins. Yeah, and that was that was another thing too. Is I wanted to make I felt the conflict dynamic was more engaging if rather than you're running in the shadows of this horrible thing, it's you have power. 
but other but you're not the only one who has power to make it more of a struggle between Kathy phrased it you know the battle for reality that idea of, of reality on the brink rather than reality being dominated rather than making it the conflict between science and magic that's a false dichotomy it was between different people with different agendas using different tools Kind of over time, uh, th- this is me making a, an overly broad generalization, but the technocracy has kind of become the magneto of <laughs> Mage yep. the Ascension. <laughs> and like, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be so, like, if, if we had enough fans, we would have Tychoides was right, shirts running around with the, <laughs> shepherd, with the shepherd fairy design. Did you have a sense that that's what the technocracy was going to be, that it would be so thoroughly embraced by the player base over time? In the 90s, the traditions fulfilled this idea idea that I can finally be myself. This is a group that that believes in the power of diversity, even though it is complicated and messy. And now we're in a world where, for fuck's sake, can someone in charge just do something? And that and the technocracy kind of fulfills that in modernity. Uh, was that something... Oh, that was totally intentional. That's one of the other reasons that I ran with the idea of doing different splat books from the perspective of rather than presenting the technocracy conventions as these are the evil people who do the thing, it was... You are one of the people doing the thing. I wanted the, the technocracy to be more, say, humanized. That idea of, you know, the uh, the evil monolith. Because, okay, I don't think, you know, it's not science that is evil. And the idea that people are abusing the power to change reality, well, that's just as true of wizards as it is of, 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 of technocrats. So you don't consider anything intrinsic to the technocracy being authoritarian or anything? Oh, the technocracy is totally authoritarian. It's what hap- it's, it's good intentions gone horribly wrong. The technocracy absolutely is authoritarian. They absolutely practice fascism. They absolutely have practiced genocide. I, again, I was very straightforward about that in Victorian age. To clarify. Um, yes. Would you consider them uniquely authoritarian? Oh, God, no. The wizards are just as bad. That was part of what I was getting at in with Vormos and and Dositep, was the wizards are just selfish, powerful fuckers are selfish, powerful fuckers. And it doesn't matter whether they're using computers or Enochian, they're evil, powerful fuckers. Which is why, to me, and I've talked about this at length, but why, to me, the ultimate villains in Mage are the Nefandi, because they are openly embracing malice as opposed to having a good idea gone bad. So that gives us... Progenitors, and that was a book where the technocracy was kind of finding its feet, um, mm-hmm. or at least that's definitely. kind of what it felt like. It, it very much kind of had it its foot was. in both worlds, and it had a bunch of evocative things. But when someone is like just knocked out and replaced with the clone, you're like, that's that's a choice. But it was good to know <laughs> that from one of the authors, the thing where the professor went around and asked for tissue samples from everyone, that was a real thing. And I'm like, oh, didn't have that as a chemistry or an actuarial science major. <laughs> <laughs> and we still have LumaFate, Digital Web, and Virtual Adepts on the horizon. Well, LumaFate was the next one that I did. I and mean, I was simultaneously developing and writing and brainstorming on a bunch of them at once. So there's the order is kind of a little bit scattered, except Digital Web, no, that was down the line. That book didn't even get started until after Book of Book of Chantries was done. LumaFate, I'd say Chris had mostly written it by that point, and I kind of guided a rewrite to it, and then I rewrote a bunch of it myself, because one of the, the, the problem with doing modules for Mage is that Mage is itself not linear, and that there's so many possibilities with Mage that trying to direct a linear story is railroading the the players, and I hate railroading. Knowing that it had to be a module, and knowing that we had to have at least a fairly linear story, Chris and I brainstormed out the breaking it down into basically a tragedy in four act, and giving a bunch of different options, if this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this, while saying, 
and this is a, a way that I, what I do when I'm running games is I come up with a, this is who's doing what to whom and how they're doing it when the characters get involved. This is who they are, this is what they want, this is what they're doing when the characters get involved. And the characters, because I, because I write like, think like, and run games like an actor, I adjust what happens after that based on, okay, you know, this is what the antagonist wants, this is how the antagonist is doing it, this is how the antagonist may respond based on their wants and their tactics, how they may respond to what the players do. And it becomes a back and forth until you get to the point where, regardless of what happens, you're going to have a resolution, here are the potential resolutions. Brainstormed working, you know, por portraying the tragedy of Weaver through the Rubiat of the of Omar Khayyam and making turning that adventure into a kind of a meditation on mortality. I don't think I put a lot of deep thought into this is this is going to be a meditation on a on, on mortality. I think that was one of those juggling as fast as I can. I always feel like anything that I work on, especially with mages, it has to mean something deeper. That was the meditation on mortality and the the ultimate tragedy of of the potential tragedy of awakening is what we restructured Vuma of Fate into. Meanwhile, Judy and Libby were working on Technocracy Progenitors. I had started brainstorming with Darren on Virtual Adepts and how we wanted to present that. And I'd, I'd come up with the idea of presenting Virtual Adepts as a flow of information because that's literally what, they're, what they are, what they're doing. Their view of enlightenment is enlightenment through the transformation of information. It's kind of interesting just to go back. You, you talk about the difficulty of writing modules for Mage. And, and to me, it was always this thing where how do you write a module for someone with Correspondence 3? And it, the Star Trek problem of there's only so many times you can deal with ionic interference or something like that before people are just like, come on. <laughs> it was always interesting to me that Mage got so few city books because to me, the solution to the module problem is you basically just need this world where things are happening that characters can run into and plot kind of falls out the other end. But but that's, that's certainly difficult to manage too. Fallen Tower, Las Vegas, we got one. But the problem with with city books, I mean, one, they didn't sell for shit. Aside from Chicago, they tank. If you are writing a an area source book, you're dealing with a phenomenal amount of information. If you live there, you're too close to it, and it's too focused on your personal interaction, your personal experience with that space. If you don't live there, then you're getting a bunch of shit wrong. And either way, you're, you're trying to sum up something that is infinitely complex in a few dozen thousand words. And Mage then gets other world source books, and, and that is kind of the answer to it. Where you, you, No one can be wrong about what's in Horizon. No one can be wrong about what's in the digital web. No one can be wrong about what's in the high umbra. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Plus, when you're talking about vampires, you're talking about these parasites that burrow into a place turn that place into their little fiefdom when you're talking about werewolves you're talking about territorial pack animal when you're talking about ghosts you're talking about haunting a particular area that is significant to the ghost when you're talking about changelings you know a lot of things go out the window then but you're still essentially talking about you know fiefdoms kingdoms courts Mages can go anywhere. The you know, like I said, with with correspondence, you know, the mage doesn't have to stay in San Francisco. The mage doesn't have to stay in New York. The mage may be in Horizon one day, Phoenix, Arizona the next, and you know Tokyo the day after that. How do you? Mages aren't territorial that way. Aside, you know, the technocracy establishing bases, you know, constructs in certain ways. Construct is another term which I think believe. 
Brian Campbell came up with because we said technocracy is not going to call them chantries. What does the technocracy call them? And and I think Brian was like, uh, I think they'd be they, they're constructed, so let's call them constructs. I'm like, that works. Yeah, let's go with it. So much of Mage came out of those kinds of exchanges. The city books weren't really appropriate for Mage anyway. Again, there are the practical elements of you're either doing a ton of research and spending a lot of words on something that most people won't even buy. And the people who do buy it will tell you how everything in it is wrong. You're mentioning Loom of Fate, which is a perfectly serviceable adventure. People are, are, are looking for examples of how a mage story can go. And if nothing, you can always rate it for spare parts, which I love to do. But the thing that sticks out to me with Loom of Fate is it's a good book, but it's hard to beat the Henry Higginbotham cover. Yeah. And, awesome. but what I did not know that Henry Higginbotham, Henry Gordon Higginbotham would do these uh, massive collages and then photograph them. They were sculptures. They were three dimensional. They were sculptures. They were brought in. He would construct them and then they were, he'd break them down into pieces, modular pieces, bring them out in his car, build them in the office. And then, you know, Rich and Chris McDonough would figure out how to photograph it. And, and it's kind of interesting because you you look at the credits for it and cover artist photography, Mark Pace, is listed for that piece. And there's one that he did that was an orrery of some sort, orrery of the nine uh, sphere symbols. And I don't know if that ever made it into anything. What was the art process like then? Because in some cases you had these utter bangers that came out of nowhere that were utterly unrelated to the text that was nearby. In other cases it was. Like for, as a developer, what was that? early process like i'm only kind of familiar with the thing where we get the complete text the developer writes up some art notes an art buy is done how was it done back then back then it was a work in progress early on when when you got you know vampire werewolf and, and mage first came out there wasn't a particular aesthetic associated with them obviously you look at the aesthetic on first edition either especially with werewolf or mage and it's all over the place because at that point the, the text hadn't been written yet rich thomas would brainstorm up with the artists rich would hire artists you know based on either worked with them on something before or you know a portfolio review that he liked or he'd meet somebody at convention and he liked them so pretty much the same way, way that we dealt with writers the artists initially had a tremendous amount of leeway in what they did because we hadn't we, again we were publishing the books as quickly as we could obviously that was resulting in it worked really well for vampire because you know vampires process started falling apart with werewolf because until yeah, and again, that's Rich Thomas, you know, did that panorama of what the different tribes looked like and that the identity of, you know, telling a silver fang from a bone gnar and so forth. And then you've got Ron Spencer, who you know, managed to run with that in, in these amazing directions. Mage's original visual identity was trench coats and katanas. Uh, <laughs> for each of the lines, Rich came up with the idea of the developer would write up a one-page this is what the aesthetic of the line is. The artist would get that. We also had uh, some in-house art. Josh Timbrook did the majority of the in-house art. That was his position. Rich himself did a fair amount of it back in the day. Kathy did some. Chris uh, McDonough did some. Uh, I think Michelle Praler did some. The majority of it was we would write up the, this is the aesthetic of this thing. And then the developer would talk to the artist or talk to the art director and say, I want to have some images that look sort of like this. That process had limited applicability. Rich, and then when he joined the staff in, I believe it was 93, uh, Larry Snelly, Lawrence Snelly, who had come over from the comic book industry, Larry said, 
you know, we've got to be more organized about this. So we came up with the idea of the art notes for the different, you have an art note for this, you know, for art notes for the full pages. The developer would write up the art notes. I want this kind of image for this, this kind of image for this. Part of the the process there involved tailoring the art notes to the artist. Ideally, you would work with somebody like Mark Jackson or Echo Chernick, who you got to know personally and could talk to them about and then brainstorm the art notes based on their style and the way that they like to get art notes. Because some art, some artists are really, really resistant to, to detailed art notes. Uh, some artists, rather, the more detailed you can make the art notes, the better the, uh, the better they like it. Over the course of this changing process is we went to just throw everything at the wall to writing up a kind of a, a, an, an overview of the book for the artist to a list of art notes that you ideally can go over with the artist. By that point, Rich has hired the artist for this book or this book or this book. And of course, obviously, when you're dealing with that many books in that shorter period of time, it started getting all kind of tangled up into who was being able to be scheduled for what, when. And then that's not even bringing in the problem with artists and writers who choke up a hairball on a project and people have to throw the art together at the last second or the writing together at the last second or as unfortunately happened with Andrew Cordling, they die while working on something. In addition to refining the process, Larry also brought in the, this phenomenal idea of signature characters. We had signature characters, but Larry said get every designer to create five or six signature characters that are going to carry over through different books to give a face to the line. And I thought that was a phenomenal idea. And obviously we, we all came up with a bunch of cool characters, most of whom had by that point already appeared in a few books. And those characters were designed for you know, basically superheroes. They were going to be the identity of the line and that they were supposed, you know, they were supposed to be you know, engaging and visually engaging and attractive in a way that would get people to want to know more. There was a portion where the artist would be sent the, the pre-edit version of the book, but most of the artists didn't read it. And that was also just getting expensive because, you know, we're still talking at that point about sending out manuscripts and a big printed manuscript cost a few bucks to send and you didn't know whether the artist would actually get it or not. So we started doing really abbreviated. The way Onyx Path is still doing things today is the, the developer will come up with a list of illustrations and say, I want to have this, I want to have this, I want to have this. And then the artist is given a certain amount of, of leeway. And again, ideally, you can tailor that list of descriptions to the artist. In the case of working with in-house people like, like Rich or, you know, or Josh, you could go over to the office and talk to them about it. That was one of those helpful things about having the office was just being able to go over and, you know, knock on Rich's door, you know, or have him come over and say, hey, you know, Phil, I got to have these uh, designs for this book. What do you want them to look like? When that would be really fun is if you got a working relationship with an artist, again, Mark Jackson, Echo Chernick, Rich himself, you know, we had a, a not only a working relationship but a vocabulary for how to phrase the art notes and this is one of the things that, that that attracted me to echo's work in the first place was echo did this amazing like tarot style design for her pieces in a fragile path that were visually completely out there in terms of what mage illustrations looked like which is exactly what i wanted and i was like i don't know who this hj mckinney is but i want them to work on like everything mage because they get it Echo at that point, Heather and I met up at uh, met up at Gen Con and you know started working together. You know, one on one, where it would just be Echo. I want you on this book, or you know, Heather. I want you on this book. 
can you do this? And she's like, yeah, I can do it like this and we can do it like that. And again, the brainstorming process where it's like working with a writer. With other artists, you never met them and you just hand, you sent, wrote up some, some art notes and somebody that you hadn't met would send in illustrations and hopefully you liked them. So it really depended. So we've got some information on the art. The, the, the kind of the last three books before 1.5, as it were, hits is we have Virtual Adepts, Digital Web, and Book of Shadows, which kind of marked the, okay, we got an idea. Let's add a little bit of gelatin to the dish and get everything to kind of come together a little bit more. Yeah, and Technocracy Iteration X. Those kind of string of books let you present technology now from the traditionalist angle with Society of Ether and Virtual Adepts kind of coming out. What was then your vision for kind of that side of technology, if you had one? It was technology as wonder and potential rather than and then as tools of control. In the case of the, the Virtual Adepts, Darren was, was, was very much a hacker in real life and was, was doing reality hacking as well as technological hacking. And we wanted to make that very much a book about how information defines and can redefine reality and can re redefine the self, redefine the person. You know, the opening words of that book, I, I hate myself, I hate my body, I hate my flesh, everything, everything the flesh is, I hate. That book was about transcending the flesh through technology. Whereas Bill, in my favorite of the pre-Book of Shadows mage books, Bill just went pulp bonzo with the, the Etherite book. And just that book is a fucking blast. I love that book. It is so much fun. Bill was, you know, looking at it as science! wonder possibility you know how dare you how dare you try to chain down what i'm what i'm capable of doing i'll show you all fools i love that that book was so much fun and then paul mercer formerly uh now formerly of, of the changelings uh who has, still has uh his project the ghost project played with faith in the muse and a bunch of other people uh maureen tucker he played with paul and his his then wife kalina were interns at white wolf and they were among the first people to playtest Mage, and Paul was one of the first people to play a, an Etherite, a Son of Ether, and he was like, can I write some, some stuff for the Sons of Ether? I'm like, yeah, man, go for it. And and he and I just like sat in the office at one time, and he brainstormed up some things, and he turned him in. I was like, yes, have fun. That book was a blast. I usually, with, with almost every book that I work on, whether it's, you know, mage or deliria or my novels or whatever i reach what i call the this fucking book stage where i'm so tired of working on it where it seems like it's never going to get done and everything is wrong the sons of ether tradition book is one of the very few books i've worked on in my entire career that did not have a this fucking book stage every day working on that book was fun science as fun brian being very much the avatar as the technocracy as the force of oppression judy being the this is how science actually works when you're a scientist and with with Libby's input on that as well. Though Libby was not a writer, she brainstormed a lot with uh, with Judy on those books. And Bill and Darren and Daniel Greenberg, when we get into digital web, being science as possibility and technology as possibility, which is how I view it. So on one hand, technology drives me up the wall because I because of my my dyslexia and dyscalculia, dyscalculia. I have problems with following systems in precise order. Otherwise, everything gets fucked up. But I love the potential of science. I love the potential of technology. I love that we are able right now to sit in a virtual room and talk to each other and that people will get to listen to this on their phones, you know, and that, that this is being recorded and that people will get to virtually sit with us in a virtual room that has no physical components other than the cameras and the microphones. 
That to me is magic. That to me is, is, is the possibility of technology and I fucking love it. So the approach to technology in MAGE was very much both. The technology can be used to spy on you and to destroy you and the technology can also be used to free you and elevate you and, and you can ascend through it and transform yourself or you can be utterly crushed and it depends it's not the device it's what you, someone does with it the unfair part to me about society of ether the, the sons of ether one ebook is all the illustrations by quentin hoover talk about people who have influenced my uh kind of view of the world of darkness the fact that quentin hoover did your art to me is proof that people are like mage is part of the world of darkness i'm like eh, it's kind of a cousin it's okay <laughs> Yeah, it's it's urban fantasy at worst in comparison. It's like there there's horror there, but that's that's not its home. That's not where it lives to me. Yeah, poor Quentin, because unfortunately for folks who don't know this, Quentin passed a few years ago unexpectedly. And he was a wonderful artist. He was a great guy. He was wonderful to work with. And Mark Jackson, who is just one of my favorite people in the world. He and I got to be best friends while we were working on Mage, and that friendship still continues. And the two of them just captured that whole freewheeling fun of, of science and that whole, you know, pulp gone, pulp gone batshit thing. And that just, and then Kathy, Kathy Ryan, when when laying it out lady catherine ryan laying it out like a rather like an issue of, of paradigm just that that book all the aggravation that i've had on so many other books in my career that book is one of those everything work and you make mention of this potential of science and its ability to transcend that kind of to me leads into digital web and it seems in kind of the one core the digital web was set up as a place where the Ascension War, if it existed there, was being waged differently. And it was kind of in that original text listed as a place that Adepts and Mastered kind of went, eh. and and your characters could be, you could have you could have three dots in something and you were the big fish in that pond. Or you could deal with someone and not know who they were. But also we have the question of, is the digital web a distraction? Are we, to quote Neil Postman, amusing ourselves to death? Like, what was your view then of that early digital web? Oh, both. In the original design document, I was like, we have to, the internet is a, is a changing force of reality. We have to have a book on that. And the, the term digital web is mine. And that idea of the digital web being its own, not a technological place constructed, but the idea of it being an, a, a reality and an entity unto itself is mine. There's also Sam and Abinett came up with the idea of Mount Kaf, which is, uh, I believe, is a metaphysical concept out of real life lore, but that idea of the place that is not a place but is all places. That element of it came from Sam and Abinett and how we tied in um, while brainstorming things up, um, brainstormed up the, the Elibatine in uh, the Book of Shadows. The concept for how we approached it was very much a three-way conflict between myself, Daniel Greenberg, and Darren McKeeman, and a big stack of Wired and Mondo 2000, that, a magazine that all three of us were reading at the time. And the idea of, of futurism, the, the early net futurism of transcending physical reality in itself was like, okay, well, this is the realm where you do it, you know, and it's not entirely astral travel in, in the traditional way, but it sort of is, but it's accessing that 
back door, and which I think that was Darren, but that whole literally back door into another reality. The idea that it was a uh, that it's an entity that is fueled by the life force of the people on it. That, that was that was mine, because uh, that's how it fucking feels. You know that you spend the day at the keyboard, and you're just like, why am I so tired? I feel like I ran a fucking marathon because the digital web's been sucking your soul. It's kind of interesting. Um, you make mention of the use of the word entity. That is something that pops up in M20, where I think for the first time the digital web is listed as semi-conscious in the first digital web i suggest it in the second digital web i say oh my god is it in in m20 it's like yeah yeah it. it is okay the idea of the web as a as a conscious entity in and of itself that that goes all the way back to the first digital web i just didn't say it in as many words because i wanted it to be a people fear that maybe i forget where it is but it's somebody has some virtual adepts had this controversial theory that Book of Shadows was kind of that 1.5 edition. What was it like learning how people were playing and figuring out, okay, we need to provide some direction. Where do we go next? Because that is a Book of Shadows, even if you don't use any of the ideas in it, is just such a fire hose of potential in a way that I don't think was followed up until Book of Mirrors or maybe the revised Storyteller Handbook, just in terms of this is what mage can be. What was that lead up and what was the feeling you had in in putting out that 1.5th edition? It was twofold. I wanted to make the worlds more workable, involved a whole lot of talking with people like the loophole fairy and figuring out how, you know, what was broken and how to shore it up. Part of it was expanding on things that were that either were mentioned, like Kurtaman, but nobody had Kurtaman, so we had to do Kurtaman. Things that that needed a rule system to them, like Do, the Akashiana, the Akashic Brotherhood, does Do. Okay, how do you do that in a game? What does Do do? Is it just brawl? No, it's just, it, and that's that's uh, if I recall correctly, Sam and Abinett and Emery Barnes wrote that uh, wrote that section. Part of it was just the rules, making codifying the rules, reworking them as need be, so that they were uh, like the idea of the the five tier awareness, influence, manipulation, and transformation and mastery although I'm not sure I phrased it that way, but I think I did do the rank one, this rank two, rank three, rank four, and you know, clarifying things like, no, you can't be a werewolf, vampire, mage, and why you can't be a vampire, werewolf. And that was, that was one of those things where you know, Andrew, Bill, and I, the, the office, we sat down and talked about, okay, now, no, or, and my response was, hell no. So you know, the thing is, then why? And I was like, because the avatar is twisted in shape. Whether you're a vampire, if you're if you're a werewolf, then you have then you're sharing in the avatar of Gaia. I think that was I think that was Bill's idea, if I recall correctly. But that the idea that a mage's avatar is potential in the case of a werewolf, a vampire, mage, changeling, or wraith, then your potential is already directed in a certain way. So no, you can't be using awakened magic. You can use head magic. You can use thaumaturgy. You can use gifts. But that's comes from the way your avatar is shaped and part of it was thematic and part of it was was historical mage needs a backstory okay so what is it and that's where uh sam chupp wrote the the section on the traditions and then i added to that brian campbell wrote the second the section on the technocracy and i added to that pretty sure sam and abinet wrote the section on the fandy and i added to that kathy ryan wrote the section on the on marauders and i added to that but it was the idea of presenting once again from the interior rather than the exterior this group is to we are this 
presenting each tradition from the perspective of people being involved in that tradition was something I wanted to but in any case once again I wanted to redefine the groups so that they to me made more sense than the way they were originally kind of you know the the two pagers and then there was the thematic which was Beth Fiske's department which was getting across not only the the game mechanics and the setting rules but thematically exploring so what is quintessence anyway what is this ascension thing beth really really ran with some beautiful stuff there because because she's like you know i'm better with stories and with words and with characters than i am with game mechanics i'm like then don't write game mechanics that book mage second or where i learned that i should just write the game mechanics my fucking self kevin andrew murphy who wrote the kurtaman rules and wrote some of the sections about symbolism and so forth wanted to basically redo the rules there were so there was a particular very uh, hermetic style that was authentic to a particular style of tradition i'm like no this has to be universal that's one of the things also that came out of those discussions was i said mage has to be universal there are different groups who are going to see things this way or that way, but the rules of magic have to apply. We're not going to have a whole bunch of different systems of magic. There's going to be one, one system of sphere magic and one system of hedge magic, but that came later, and we know how much of a headache that book was. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there is one magic to rule them all, and that people just employ it different ways. And I also, like, I wrote the section about seekings. But the idea of presenting them as stories and parables rather than as, and then your character does this, I thought was important to get across the mindset of Mage. And that kind of brings us into that first year, more or less. Just kind of some some random questions. Did you ever get pressure to make Mage fit more with the World of Darkness? Or how do you feel that you kind of blended it with the rest of the World of Darkness thematically? We know that certain groups were created as a tie. You had mentioned before that the Nefani were created as like Black Spiral Dancers links and the uh, the, the early Dreamspeakers were, were another link. Uh, did you get any push like thematically to kind of bring it into line with where Werewolf or where Vampire were? Not really, no. Um... One of the things, and aside from Chaos Fact uh, and the Ascension Warrior trilogy, nobody pushed me to do anything. Those first few books had been contracted out, but I had pretty much complete creative freedom with Mage. Uh, I think in a lot of levels, people were, were were afraid of it. I did not have external pressure from, from sales, marketing, or management telling me to do something, except in the case of Chaos Factor, where we have to we have to bring Samuel Haight's story to a close, sort of. People were like, you know, are you going to do a Mage Tarot? Well, of course we're going to do a Mage Tarot. What's Mage's Book of Nod? But that was about the extent of the external pressure. No, Bill, Andrew, and myself said we have to make this all fit together because the original the first edition lines it was actually a design thing that they should be distinctly different and that was of course driving people both in the audience and in the staff up the wall bill andrew and myself were like we need to figure out how this all works whose idea was the number on the spines uh rich rich thomas okay was there a major goal that you had kind of from that era that maybe never came to fruition either because it couldn't be done or you just ran out of words oh so many one of the big ones was Rich. Rich and I always wanted to do a pulp era mage and or a World War II era mage. And I always wanted to do like a whole thing. And obviously Sorcerer's Crusade, or it was originally pitched as Fall of the Covenants. I felt we needed to do a medieval style fantasy game. But I, I was 
all in favor of I wanted to do a pulp style and it never came to be. I would have liked to have done like a mage comic. You know, we, we experimented a little bit with that in the, the, the uh, embracing the mask where I learned how badly I wrote comics before I learned how to do it. But it was it was it was a fun experiment and I would love to have done more stuff with that, like a full, you know, a graphic novel thing. That was even something Rich Thomas and I talked about doing as a as a mage twenty stretch goal, but you know, never happened. I always wanted to do and I think we might have I wanted to do a a book called The Void of Heaven, which would have been the Umbra for Sorcerer's Crusade. There's so much I want to do with Sorcerer's Crusade. I was really starting to feel definitely burned out with Mage by the by the time, you know, by, by 1998. And I was in the process of kind of grooming Jess Hennig to take over Ascension while I shifted over to doing Sorcerer's Crusade full-time. Obviously, things were... Technically, that did happen <laughs> because when I had my falling out with management and they wanted me gone and I wanted to be gone, so I handed it off to uh, to Jess. I said, I want Jess to be the one to take over Mage. And Mike Tinney did the Art House imprint where he picked up the things that, um, that White Wolf was going to cancel and he said, I'll handle this. And he hired to do the Sorcerer's Crusade line. But that actually isn't what ended up happening until I finally just, you know, <laughs> threw down the toys and stomped away in, in you know, 99, 2000. But there, there was so much that I wanted to do with Sorcerer's Crusade. Yeah, I mean, even Sorcerer's Crusade made mention of books that were planned that had never come out. There was a going to be a source book for the, the the Lands of Faith and so on, and that never obviously made it out the other end. I think there's one or two mentions to kind of other uh, practice books. The Alchemist Handbook and the Witch's Handbook, which you know, Witches and Pagans eventually came out, but... Uh... I don't know how we could possibly have done this, but I loved the idea of the, the Lodge Wars of Tuscany. Uh, that was going to be a, like a campaign setting for the Italian city-states during the Renaissance. That would have been a fucking blast. It also would have been an enormous amount of work, but it, but it would have been neat. It was one of my pet projects. Those two things tend to be highly cor uh, correlated. Uh, that would have been neat, and that would have been a fucking <laughs> massive amount of work. Is there anything from those early books that you would ever want to kind of bring back? Either a character or an idea or just a feeling that if you could just kind of plop that back in that you would want to. Anything that maybe was gotten rid of over your time as developer that you're like, ah, maybe maybe we should have kept that. I think the biggest thing is just the fun. I miss the fun. I had fun on Mage 20. I really loved the, the atmosphere of possibility of that first year or two i was enjoying the job a lot more than i that i eventually did that huge canvas it was intimidating and inspiring i had for about two years every day this sense of getting up and going into work and getting to create something neat and working with a bunch of people i like to create something neat and i miss that and in terms of practical ideas it would have been neat to have run more with the whole um ruins of doisatap thing i was kind of alluding to and sort of maybe setting up a war in the ruins source book in uh, tales of magic dark adventures that would have been a lot of fun kathy and i talked about you know doing high adventures in the high umbra sort of stuff that that would have been that would have been neat if we had had the people i mean the dragons of the east started as an idea that i that that i had but I didn't know any Asian authors, so I was like, I'm not going to do this book until we can have Asian authors to work with on it. I wouldn't have called it Lost Paths because they're not lost. The idea of exploring other magical cultures is something that 
I would have liked to have done more of. And again, with more of an eye toward authenticity. Uh, I had some questions when I posted the My Least Favorite Mage Books meme with a Book of Crafts. And people are like, Book of Crafts, really? And I'm like, I have extraordinarily mixed feelings with that book because on one hand, I wanted to explore other magical cultures and make other groups that existed completely outside the traditions and technocracy. I wish we'd had more people from those cultures to work with them. Well, aside from the, the, the Wulong, which, uh, not, not the Wulong, but the, but the, the Wukang, um, which was a, an unmitigated disaster. I'm sorry, Derek, it was good. I, it, was, it seemed like a neat idea at the time, but I wish we could have worked with Chinese writers on something more authentically Wulong. I wish we could have had, as, as we did in later iterations, but with the, uh, the Bata'a being written by actually black Americans as opposed to two white guys. <clears throat> the Kopaloi were written by a Polynesian author or a Hawaiian author. I don't actually know if he's Polynesian because I've never met him. James did a great job with the Templars, and Kevin with the uh, with the Children of Knowledge slash Silificati, that one was neat. And and Dina with the uh, the Sisters of Hippolyta, those groups are, are are quite good. And then there are like the the Bukeng and the Wulung and the the Bata'a. Again, good idea. White white guys shouldn't have written it. <laughs> so it's a mixed. Oh, and then the Hemka soap actually were written by an Egyptian author. This is just Terry speaking. Is Terry? The thing that gets me about it is those informed me about so many ways of magic that I never knew existed that even though they were wrong, they brought me from I didn't know this existed to I did. And that's frequently the hardest leap. And I think we are frequently a little bit too hard on authors from certain eras for not sticking that landing because you're not a ethnomusicologist, you are not a comparative anthropologist, you are not an expert in, and, and just the fact that you're saying, this thing exists, I think is such a crucial lift. Even if it isn't done perfectly, I think that is, I don't have a problem with that. Like, it, it is very easy to walk in and be like, yeah, this is probably a little bit wrong. It's a game book. Like, I didn't expect Glories of Rome to be historically accurate when I picked that up for, for Dungeons & Dragons or what have you. It was inflected for a game. It is, the, the, the Scylla and Charybdis of Mage has always been the fact that, oh no, we are the line that pulls from real human history and belief all the things that come with that that can make it rich and compelling, but um, absolute, you're trying to tap dance on a minefield half the time. And there's also the outsider's paradox that a write-up of a group's magical belief written by a member of that belief will read to me as less accurate than what another person trying to make sense of it is because that person with the first person perspective is so steeped in it that I, that there, there are so many assumptions baked into it that it will almost come across as wrong to me. Like I don't want to read, as you mentioned, I don't want to read the tour guide written by the person who's lived there for 30 years. Yes, they have a type of thorough understanding, but all the best stuff usually comes comes from when you have that expert and then you have someone who can serve as translator. And boy, howdy, is that hard to line up on any text. I have to think that there were a lot of people like me that even if some of the details were wrong, it was the first time I knew about the Sami. It was the first time I knew about Chinese indigenous uh, practices or or the feminine mystical tradition. Even if I don't remember, even if the details that were in the rotes were wrong, just the fact that I knew that it existed and it primed me for running into it the next time in the real world and not being like, and being like, oh no, I've heard, I've heard of this. This is not new to me. Is an immensely powerful thing that games and popular media can do to aid in cultural exchange. 
That's me. I want it to be as respectful and as uh, and, and authentic as possible, especially because as, as we've talked about before, when you're talking about when you're talking about magical practices, you're talking about people's this is my bitch, this is my actual religion. And I, I've always wanted to be and always strive to be respectful to that as respectful as you know was possible. And you can't find somebody of this particular group to write about it. <laughs> That's <laughs> one of those other, in the, the, with the with the pre-internet era, was we were also writing this stuff during the satanic panic. You know, if you asked your average person what a role-playing, if, if you met, if, if they even heard, heard of a role-playing game, you said something like, oh, it's like Dungeons & Dragons, but that's satanic. So y your writer pool is also limited by that, not to mention the, and for two cents a word, and we own the rights. So we've we've worked through that first year, the early years. Any closing thoughts on kind of what it was like to be there at the beginning or any last shout outs or um, things that haven't fit into the framework of our discussion so far? Thank you. It's a big thank you to everybody who was involved. Everybody, uh, thank you to the fans who were like, this is weird, but I like it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was a whole bunch of people when Mage first appeared. People were like, what the, what do I even do with this? I don't know, but it's neat. <laughs> Uh, and thank you to Stuart, because as much as it is easy to talk about the, you know, talk about the, the flaws or the things that we needed to work around in Mage with Mage First Edition, Stuart created something that was radical and visionary and fucking awesome. There, there was a whole lot of people and a whole lot of wrangling and a whole lot of time to bring that vision into fruition, into something that thousands of people could understand and grasp and play. But Stuart's vision made all the rest of this possible. And him hiring me changed my life. And that phone call was one of the greatest moments of my life. So thank you, Stuart. Thank you for what you created. Thank you for, for, thank you for trusting me with it. To our collaborator, especially Sam, and Kathy and Bill, Brian, Sam, both Sam Chupp and Sam and Abinett and Darren and Nikki and Jackie and the various people and, and Judy and Libby and, and Chris help mix up the paints <laughs> to paint the great big painting and, and Rich Thomas for helping coach me through those first few months of, oh my fuck, what am I doing? Hey, let's, wouldn't this be neat? But hiring me to do it again, giving me as much artistic freedom as, as he could with a, a property that belonged to somebody else. I feel like Mage on a number of levels is an honor and a sacred charge. And it's it's been a magical working for 30 years that has changed my life and the lives of many other people. And I, I feel great gratitude to everybody who is and has continued, you including Tara, who has been and continues to be a part of that journey because it's a fucking amazing journey. My only request to a listener is if you do crack open any of these original mage texts, any of this one year, take that second to really linger on the artist and dedication page. Mage became a different game to me when I realized that that list of names was a list of people who had lives and background who were pouring that life experience and their time into it. I love doing author interviews for people who do STV and the sheer bravery required to say, I will probably not make any money off of this, but I have an idea and I want it to exist in the world is the, the greatest act of magic or the first act of magic that a person can perform. And to participate, as you mentioned, in that grand ritual is something that will hopefully allow this this hobby and this adventure and the possibility to exist for the next hopefully 30 years. Fingers crossed that we accumulate enough successes in quintessence to keep the ritual going. <laughs> so, <laughs> but well put. With that, what are two things 
that you would like to direct the audience for. You frequently have 10. I can't list them all in the show notes. I only have so many characters to work with. So let's just pick two or three. One I'm going to point at, I'm going to take it from you, is your TikTok series on early mage stuff has been lovely. It's also fascinating for someone who's like, musician, author, layout designer, guy figuring out TikTok. You get to go on Satoros's personal <laughs> journey of exploring a new technology, which is kind of fun. Oh, and I'll man. include a link to that in the show notes. You're doing a bunch of stuff around uh, Mage, Mage at 30. I wanted to use M30, but I didn't want people to think that there was a new edition. <laughs> so God, People have been asking me about that all month. And I'm like, no. <laughs> They're like, why not? I'm like, because we, we, we would have to have started it four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so um, what, what should we point people at? I also really want to point people at my non-mage work. The novel Red Shoes and my collection of short fiction, Valhalla with a Twist of Leaf. Those are available on through all major booksellers. For sale in some book brick and mortar stores as well, but it's on like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and uh, Books A Million and so forth. I do love being that damn mage guy, but I'm not only that damn mage guy. These are the things that um, continue to pay my rent and bills and are things that I'm have created and continue to create outside of Mage with a number of the same ideas, obviously, because you know, they're coming from me, but are taking them in, in my direction rather than in the within the World of Darkness framework. And my Patreon, which is how people can and do support me creating those other things. And we will include a link to all those things in the show notes. Satoros, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you as well, Terry. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. This has been Mage the Podcast, where I wanted to use the theme song from The Wonder Years as the intro music for the Mage at 30 episodes, but doing so would immediately demonetize all of our videos on YouTube. If anyone knows Daniel Stern, I'd love him to do some voiceover work for us. This episode was made possible by Sean Gallagher, Oracle of the early experimental band The Mages, which when accused of sucking would just say... That's like just your point of view. Ben Mendelow, Oracle of the original version of the Traditions Protocols, where Protocol 1 was we don't talk about the protocols. Buck Gregory, Oracle of the original Technocratic Union Chantries, which are known as Union Halls. But that got confusing quickly when people got quintessence there instead of a potentially cheap venue for a wedding or bar mitzvah. Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the boring alternative to the Sons of Ether, the Nuns of Ether, who just spent each day praying for someone to buy them a spaceship. Guy Stewart, Oracle of Duizatep originally being located in the Icelandic penumbral realm of Aethiatli Yakatal think. I always, but I was never quite sure. Joshua Hillerup, Oracle of the Fellowship of the Sacred Beaver, a Canadian craft that just never made the cut. Pukaji, Oracle of the Original Orders of Hermes, which was just House Marianita. Jay Widener, Oracle of Hospitaliano, the Guide to the Olive Garden Wars of the late 90s, another book that was never produced. Mikhail, Oracle of the Mage Wraith crossover book that we never got called What Did We Talk About When We Talk About Oblivion, and The Crew of Erebus, the Oracle of the original term for traditional sanitaries, which was just Tree Fort. Also, thank you to Archmaster Andrew Adelstein, Archmaster Brad of the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Morgan Aran, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, Alex, Alexia, Ambiversion, Andrews S, Anon, Badurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sinchotis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fragger Rock, George Lara, Henry Kraft, Ia Bolt, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Lawson Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halper and Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanoff, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Patrick McNamara, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, 
Rubem Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, and William Martin. Our EP shout-out in this episode is to Eric Schwenk, who, when I search that name, the first result I get is on Twitter is a handle for NKY underscore corn grower. And uh, through this person's Twitter feed, I learned that corn growing is broken into two periods, the vegetative state and the reproductive state. The end of one cycle and the beginning of the other depends on a critical period after tassel emergence where it will shed pollen for two weeks. Managing this period of pollen shedding is critical to get appropriate kernel development. I also discovered that there's a unit called the Growing Degree Day, which rivals the mole inch per acre as my new favorite agronomic unit. When I see a crop transitioning from V2 to V4, I'll think of you, Eric. Rather listen on YouTube, search Maids the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at MagesThePodcast at gmail.com or at MagesThePodcast on Twitter. We also have a hop and Discord community at discord.me slash MagesThePodcast. Mates the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at Mates the Podcast. If you like us, give us a review on the platform we're choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to MatesThePodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.